that in 2018, 1.7% of our GDP was spent on litigation, and now in 2023, it is expected to be 2.3%. Ugh. But today, while I am letting a lawyer on fraudish, you are going to learn about trust, and I know that seems like an oxymoron. Dr. Yoram Solomon is not a practicing lawyer, and yet he speaks on trust. The path to trust was a bit winding, and I found it to be fascinating, and I think you will too. We also talk about trust falls. I have included a YouTube video from Yoram in the show notes, so let's get started. say to many, many audience is I trust no one. And it always gets a good laugh. But we are going to learn all sorts of things today about trust. And we have Yoram Solomon here who has the trust show. And um, I'm going to link to his TED talk. And um, it's awesome. Uh, And we met, of course, on my favorite social media, LinkedIn. And I was immediately intrigued because I think trust is so incredibly important. So, Yoram, we're going to start with a few little um, speed rounds when or word associations. When I say fraud, what do you think of? Frog. <laughs> so many people think that. It's so, so funny. How about ethics? Relatives. Wait, what? Relatives. Relative. Oh, that's good. That is good. And then um, my last question is, do you have to trust everyone? No, and you can't. Oh, okay. Okay. So Yoram, give the fraudish audience sort of your spiel and how you ended up talking all about trust. Okay, I thought I just set it up for a whole different direction. Uh, well, this is 30 years ago, if you would have told me that uh, 30 years later, I was an engineer, I was writing software, if you would have told me that uh, 30 years later, I will have 16 books on trust, and have a podcast on trust and uh, speak a lot and do workshops, I would have thought that you're crazy. Uh, so I started as an engineer, really, my big thing was innovation, I would come up with new things and new products for different companies. Um and when it was time for me to work on my doctoral research, my my mentor, Cordy, who's, by the way, one of the people that influenced me the most in my life, uh, you know, one thing that you learn when you do it, your doctoral re- uh, research is they tell you that a good dissertation is a done dissertation because most people would never finish it. And so, um, you know, I have that in mind. I come up with topics and he's just every topic I come up with, he knocks down. And I was getting really, really frustrated with him. And at some point he said, Yoram, I expect you to come up with something that's going to improve your life and the lives of others. And I thought, well, that's exactly the opposite of a good dissertation is a done dissertation. Um, and and he, I keep bringing up ideas, maybe a little better, still not nothing is good enough for Corey. And at some point, he asked me one of the most pivotal questions in my professional life. Kelly, he asked me, Yoram, what pisses you off? And I wanted to say, well, you... I'm trying to come up with the topic and you don't let me. But the words that came out of my mouth were, why are people so much more creative when they work for startup companies than they when they work for large mature companies? Because I had startup companies. I was part of startup companies. I started startup companies. But at that time, I was working for Texas Instruments, you know, a company with 35,000 employees, anything but a startup. And so I could see the difference and I wanted to research it. And so I did. I spent the next two years, 348-page dissertation. Uh, It boils down to two words, innovation, culture. So it's really the culture. But when I broke down culture, what I realized was that innovation is the second floor of the building. And you never start building a building from the second floor. Culture is the first floor. Trust is the foundation. You have to start with trust. And that was when I started uh, thinking about trust, reading about trust, researching trust, doing some surveys to get a sense of how important it really is. And, and I found that it is. At that point, I felt that I was kind of in a fork in the road. Do I continue with innovation or do I switch to trust? So I asked 20 of my closest friends and family members, what do you think I should do? Do I stick with innovation or do I switch to trust? Kelly, 19 out of 20 said, stick with innovation. So I switched to trust. (laughs) 
Wait, who's the person who told you to go to trust? Your wife? I don't remember. I just remember that 19 said stick with innovation. I think I know who it was, a friend of mine. And, and the thing is, by the way, the 19 people who told me to stick with innovation, they weren't mean. They weren't bad. They, they weren't trying to hurt me. They were trying to keep me within my comfort zone or what they thought was my comfort zone. Uh, stick with innovation. Uh, that person was the only person that said, you know what? Stretch it. Stretch the bar, stretch, get out of your comfort zone. And that's what I ended up doing. Never, never had to look back. I I so, so love that because um, if you can't trust, how can you count on each other when you need to? Um, it, it's just, it's the basis of everything. It is. I, I really think it's the basis of everything. I worked with someone and I said to a friend of mine, I said, should I tell him my concerns? But I said, the little part in me says, don't. And the little part in me was very right. Like, turned out to, I don't say narcissist anymore because I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. He had very narcissistic tendencies, and I knew I couldn't trust him. Yeah. You know, one of my surveys, I found that um, <laughs> there is one of my keynotes I called uh, I call give tr- uh, give feedback like you care, take feedback like it matters. But I found in one of my surveys that when you have high trust, you know, people are 240% more willing to be vulnerable, ask stupid questions, suggest stupid ideas. Why? Because they trust that the other person is not going to abuse what they said. It's not going to go behind your back and say, hey, you know what Yoram said? Yoram said the stupidest thing in this meeting. So you trust them. 240% more willing to be uh, vulnerable. 106% more willing to give the feedback that you thought you needed to give that other person, but you didn't because you didn't trust them in how they're going to take it. And 76% more receptive to feedback coming from other person, another person, because you trust them that what they have in mind is your best intentions and nothing else. Oh my gosh. I could just like, okay. So I have a lot, a lot of questions because as I said, I have trust issues. Um, Have you done any work with like, I'm going to say your little gut that tells you like my colleague, like what is it about your gut that is right or wrong? And should we count on your gut for trust? Well, actually, I, I will I will answer this, probably not the way you thought, but uh, I want to touch on something you said. You said it twice. Uh, you said, I don't trust people. I have trust issues. By the way, when somebody asks me, what do you do? Uh, typically, what I do is I lower my head, I uh, fiddle with my foot, and I say, I have trust issues. I deal with trust issues. Uh, I do. I, you know, I, I have trust issues. And, and this takes me to I observed eight laws of trust and in the eight laws of trust, I didn't create, I didn't invent them. I, I'm just observing them and reporting them. The eighth one is that the level of trust that I have in you, trust is a two-person game. The level of trust that I have in you is the product of my trustfulness, my willingness to trust other people and your trustworthiness, your ability to be trusted, your, your traits and that makes you trusted. There is almost nothing you can do about the former. Kelly, I can't do anything about your trustfulness because you are the sum of your experiences. There's a story that I tell about my wife. She was coming back from Israel and uh, she ate a sandwich in in a fast food restaurant in uh, Philadelphia. She was connecting there um, and uh, she felt really, really, really bad in the flight. Uh, I mean, she spent nearly the entire flight in the restroom. She would never walk into that restaurant chain again, not just the one in Philadelphia. She would never go into that chain again. That's trustfulness. That's an issue with trustfulness. The reason you say that you don't trust people is because of your experiences in life. And you know what? If I need you to trust me, the only thing I can work on is my trustworthiness, not your trustability or your, your trustfulness. But let, let me answer the question that you asked. You asked, can I rely on my gut? I'll tell you where my gut comes in. Uh, I have a model of, uh, of, I call it the relative trust model that I developed. It has six components. 
One of the component is intimacy. And what I mean by intimacy is this. When we communicate, we can communicate using words. You know, I'm going to text you something. I'm going to email you something. Well, I can uh, fix it. I can edit it. I can change it as many times until I send it, right? And then you have to read between the lines. But when I'm there in person, even when we do it over Zoom, like we do right now, you can see me. And the most important part is you can see the consistency between what I say and how I say it, both my tone of voice and my body language. That, and here's why you can trust me. You can trust me because you can see the consistency because I can control my words. I have a lot more control over my words than my body language and tone of voice. So I can almost not control this one. And this is where you got Kamzine. When you see the consistency, it's your gut that tells you that person is consistent. This is where I think it plays. But you know, the, the reason I developed that relative trust model is that you, you would have something more scientific, more checklist-like uh, that you can rely on other than your gut. Yeah, and my gut's been wrong, but the idea of the consistency and and i joke that i don't trust anyone but that's i do trust a lot of people but once someone breaks that trust i have a dead to me list yes. and they immediately go to the dead to me list and the dead to me list is basically i don't trust them yeah and you know uh it's it's an interesting thing that you bring up if you think about that uh we are and, you know, we can argue whether we agree with the critical positivity ratio or the Losada ratio or any other ratio or what uh, Danielle Kahneman and Amos Tversky uh, did in the prospect theory when they got the Nobel Prize in 2002 for economics, even though neither one of them had ever attended an economics class. But uh, all of them say the same thing. We are much more likely to post a negative, let's say, review if we had a negative experience, then to post a positive review, if we had a positive experience, we are driven by the bad a lot more than by the good. This is why if I do something that would earn trust from you, I can put the effort and earn some trust. If that same effort was put into something that would reduce your trust, the impact is going to be devastating. Well, that's optimism bias too. Like we don't think that bad things are going to happen to us and they are. And so we're, so dealing with fraud, you know, I meet people and they're like, well, I hire people I know, like, and trust. And, um, and then when they break it, it's so bad. Yeah. It's never the money. It is always the breach of trust. And I joke that I'm the fraud therapist, but that's where I feel that I'm most helpful is like, You'll get through this and you will learn to trust again, but you're going to, and I don't have my sticker out right now. You're going to trust, but verify much more so than before. That's right. And when you say, you said frog therapist. <laughs> Rod. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Have that before. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, what's your, what's your motto as the trust guy. I'm going to say the trust dude. What's your motto? So I have several. The first one is, and this is where when I decided to take trust as a topic, the first thing is I wanted to know what everybody knows about it. And so what did they write about? It? What articles? And I'm not just talking about the books, you know, uh, Stephen Covey's The Speed of Trust. And I'm talking about research articles and so on. And then I started doing my own surveys. And then I asked myself, do I look at trust differently? I mean, am I going to be somebody who says what everybody else already said before, or do I have a unique uh, approach to it? And I found that I do. I have a unique approach. And the unique approach is that trust is relative. If you ever went to a seminar, a workshop, a keynote about trust, this is what you're going to hear. Do one, two, three. And when you do one, two, three, you're going to be trusted. If you don't do one of them or more of them, you're not going to be trusted, period. And it applies to everyone because trust is absolute and it's universal. It's not. Trust is relative. In fact, the same behavior 
that could cause one person to trust me could cause another person to distrust me. And one of the examples that I give in this is, um, you know, take uh, perfectionism, okay? I'm a perfectionist. You're not. Well, would you have a problem trusting me? you're going to have some issue with the fact that I'm a little too anal in everything that I do. No, I have to measure twice, cut once. No, heck, I need to measure 17 times, cut once. It's going to drive you crazy. You're not going to trust me because you know that I'm going to be the one stalling. On the other hand, I don't trust you because for you, accuracy is not very important. You're going to come out with something that's half-baked. So, but here's the other thing. It, what, what would happen if you were a perfectionist just as me? You would trust me and I would trust you. So being a perfectionist is not good or bad. Yes, there are things at the top of the pyramid, like telling the truth. You know, um, you, asked, you, you used the word uh, ethical and I said relative and you, you were a little puzzled. Uh, because here's the thing. There is the legal bar and there is the ethical bar. Okay, and and this would really fit into your specific podcast uh, talking about fraud. What would you call the things that are below? So, you know, the worst thing that you can do are in the bottom. The best thing that you can do, Mother Teresa and all are in the top. What would you call somewhere there is the legal bar? What would you call the things below the legal bar? Lying. Illegal. They're illegal. They're, you know, illegal, criminal, whatever. It's below the legal bar. And the legal bar is very clear. And and by the way, when an organization has an ethics manual, a code of conduct or something like this, we we look at it as as if it's ethics. It's not. I consider it legal because there are extrinsic ramifications to violate that line. So that's legal. Uh, And the ramification, if you go below that line, are extrinsic, have nothing to do with with what you did the or the the natural outcome, but with uh, the punishment. Somewhere up there is the ethical bar. What would you call the things above the ethical bar? They're good. They're simply good, good things. So if you do something above the ethical bar, you're good. What do you call the things in between the ethical bar and the legal bar? Well, we have different names for them. Uh, gray area, loopholes, all the things that you know you shouldn't, but it's not illegal. Here's the problem. How would you treat someone who acts below the ethical bar? Well, you don't trust them, right? What if they're above the ethical bar? Then you do. Who sets the ethical bar? You You do. do. Yeah. So you have your ethical bar, I have my ethical bar. Anything above you, and and here in the demonstration, uh, your higher, your ethical bar is higher than mine. Anything that's above your ethical bar, we both trust each other. Anything below my ethical bar, we both distrust each other. Anything in between, if I act in between, it's above my ethical bar, but it's below yours. You're not going to trust me. If you act between them, I'm going to trust you because it's still above my ethical bar. That's why I'm saying trust is relative. It is not absolute. And that's one of the biggest motives. So this is kind of funny because you guys don't know this yet, but um, Yoram did research before he got on the podcast and he listened to a couple of my episodes and I have a whole thing about lawyers. Now, Yoram does have a law degree. He is not practicing. And I would say that the... Like I could make a bad lawyer joke right now. I'm not going to make a bad lawyer joke right now. The your bar and my bar in between, that's like lawyer dumb. That's it depends. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. It depends. It's uh, for one person, it's positive and the other is negative. And the thing is, uh, who are we to judge, to decide? I can only decide if I trust you based on where your ethical bar is relative to mine. Yeah. Yeah, which is, so I wrote this down while you were talking about this is, what about industries? Like, okay, let's just go to the easiest one, car dealers or used car salesmen. Seriously, you didn't go for politicians? I try to keep that out of the podcast Uh, just because I, you know, this is a positive podcast. We um, So, but like different industries, I'm going to say have different, you know, 
relativities. Yeah. So um, I think it's more, I still think that it's more a personal thing, but you know, you, you touched on something uh, you're talking about an industry. So you already have your opinion on car salespeople or used car salesmen. Here's an interesting, an interesting thing. This feeds into your trustfulness, your willingness to trust, because your trustfulness is not about me. That's my trustworthiness. That's my part of the equation. Your trustful trustfulness is about all people or a specific type of people. And when you think of uh, used car salesmen, you, you already put them into the, I don't trust it. But that's because that's how they behave. I can tell you that um, one of my cars, actually, I, I bought two cars from the same car, uh, the same salesperson uh, in the same dealership. When it was time to buy the second one, second time from the same brand, I just said, I don't want to talk to anybody else except this person because I trusted that person. Here is an interesting thing. In one of my surveys, I asked, um, what is the most important quality for you in other people? And I gave six types of people. I asked about your boss, your employees, your peers, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative, here's our politicians, and your spouse. What is the most important quality for you in them? On average, across all six types, 61.2% said trustworthiness is number one. Well, the highest was actually for salespeople. Not that we think that they're trustworthy. We're saying that the most important quality I have in a salesperson is their trustworthiness, 77.6%. And I said, wait, so let's see if people are willing to put their money where their mouth is. So I did another survey. This time there was a scenario, two salespeople coming in, uh, giving proposals and so on. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, but one of them came across as very trustworthy. The other one, completely the opposite. Using my model. So I, I, I didn't say that one of them was trustworthy. The other one was not. But I described them along the six components of my relative trust model. And, and one of them would come out to be very trustworthy, the other one very untrustworthy. And then I asked, both of them gave you a proposal with the same amount, for the same amount. Which one would you go with? You know, I would ask people and they would go, okay, is there a camera here? Because, <laughs> Am I getting I mean, It's pretty obvious that you're going to go with the trustworthy one. Okay, fair enough. This, by the way, I gave, I told them that the project is a $10,000 project. So the... Uh, Second option is the trustworthy salesperson uh, asks for 11,000, 10% more, while the uh, other one asks for 10,000. Which one would you choose? 100% of my recipients still said, I'm going to go with the trustworthy one. 20%, 58% still said, I'm going to go with the trustworthy one. 50% higher price, I still had 21% who said I'm going to go with the trustworthy one. And by the way, 40.4% said it's still going to be one of them, but I need to think about it a little more. Uh, the bottom line for this is once I put everything into a formula, I came up with this number. A trustworthy salesperson can sell the same product or service for 20 uh, 29.6% higher price and still get the business. So, you know, we categorize them as salespeople are not trustworthy, but that's because this, this is who they are and not all of them are like that. And and one of my keynotes is uh, is called sell on, sell on, trice, on trust and not on price. Yeah. I mean, granted, I'm later in life. And when I was younger, it was more about price, price. But now it's so much more about trust and ease and being able to be comfortable with that person. Um, I bought a different house recently and I knew I would go to my realtor that I used before. And um, not only because she was competent, but because she is so incredibly trustworthy to me. And it's a buying a house is a very personal experience. Like, I don't want to say you get what you pay for, but like, I wouldn't have gotten my house if it weren't for her and the other party realizing that she was good to her word. 
Yeah, I would add one more thing. You said it's not because of her competence as it was because of her trustworthiness. Um, to me, one of the six components of trustworthiness is competence. I mean, if she was completely incompetent, and, and the example I give is, uh, you know, imagine that you have this uh, pilot who is very trustworthy and all. The only thing is, is not very competent in landing planes. But other than that, he is a trustworthy person. I mean, his word is his bond, just not very good at landing uh, a plane. Uh, would you trust him to be your pilot? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> yeah, not at all. So competence is just part of it. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to her if I didn't yeah. feel she was competent. Absolutely. That's what that's all I'm saying. I'm not putting them one against the other. I'm saying competence is one component of trustworthiness. So one of the um, I don't know if it was the CEO or founder of Shopify, which is huge. He I heard him on a podcast because all I do is listen to podcasts now. Um, and he talked about the trust bank. Have you heard of the trust bank? You have to make deposits. Oh, uh, so it's it's uh, actually funny. Uh, I. I don't look at it as bank, but but I do use a financial term of a balance sheet. Oh, yeah. In so, uh, the way I look at my model, my, my relative trust model is made of three group of two groups of three components each. One group is the who you are, and the other group is the what you do. So, Kelly, every time we interact, we you change what I think about you and your trustworthiness. There are three components there, by the way, the positivity, time, and intimacy. And that, uh, and, and I give two examples. One of them is I say, this is your P&L, your profit and loss, your income statement versus your balance sheet. So you deposit or you take away. I started using another analogy, and that's a bucket and a faucet. There is a faucet in the top, faucet in the bottom. You can either, with every interaction, you can either put more water or you can take a little water out. By the way, there's a little leak in the bottom that you don't notice, and that is if we do not interact frequently enough, as a self-defense mechanism, I will trust you less. The more time passes, I will trust you less because you may have changed. Your position on things may have changed. Uh, we may not agree on the same things. So I, I'm, I'm trusting you a little less, but every interaction has a very fast impact. And, you know, using the financial uh, the financial example is... P&L versus your balance sheet, your income statement versus balance sheet. Income statement is, bam, profit or loss. Balance sheet is, so what do we have total? One more thing I would add is that uh, the deposits into the uh, balance sheet can be done by other people. And this is my fifth law of trust. The trust is transferable. If, you know, we spend, what, 30 minutes together so far, you got to know me to some extent. By the way, you asked about your gut. You feel that what I'm saying and my body language are consistent. You can trust what I say. You've done some research to know that I know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, I told you that I wrote 16 books. You looked at Amazon. You said, wait, there's 23. No, some of them are second and third editions. <laughs> Still 16 books. Uh and by the way, there are people who would say, oh, I have 23 books because I have one book in three editions. I consider that a, you know, my ethical bar. This is below my ethical bar. My ethical bar would say the book of trust is in the third edition. It's still one book and not three. Um, but uh, now that you trust me to a certain level, and let's say that at the end, once we're done, you're going to ask me, hey, Yoram, is there somebody else that you trust uh, to help me with X? I don't know what. Lawyers, because you love lawyers, obviously. Uh, is there a lawyer you can recommend? And I would recommend a lawyer. Even though you didn't interact with that lawyer, that lawyer comes to you with something in their balance sheet because I said that I trust them and you trust me to a certain degree. So... This leads me to uh, um, a, a discussion I had earlier this week about lies of omission. And how do lies of omission change the trust factor? Because I had an argument and I and this person said it wasn't a heated argument by any stretch of the imagination. I just said what they're not saying makes me trust them even less. 
and they're liars. And my friend said, it's just a lie of omission. Of course, she's a lawyer. Um, but like, is that for some people is a lie of omission worse than for other people? So first of all, I'm sure that your friend didn't say it's a lie of omission. Stop there. She probably said it's a lie of omission. That will be two hundred and seventy five dollars. <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> enough lawyer jokes. Um, but um, you know, it's it's like the, you you went through my podcast. It looked like you went through my podcast because you know I could answer this with uh, I can tell you that this is a terrible question because I don't have an answer to, or it's a good question I do have an answer to, or and it's an excellent question because I actually recorded a podcast episode on that. By the way, that's my podcast, the Trust Show. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I just, it was, it was titled Half Truths, White Lies, and Trust. And it comes down to several things. There are several aspects to consider. One is, and a very important one, what is the intention that they had when they omitted that piece? Was it to mislead you? Was it because, you know, one of the things that uh, I remember once, uh, you know, talk about things that you remember in life. I lived in Israel. I had to travel to the U.S. I was out in the, two, in the U.S. for two weeks, I think. My father got hospitalized. Nobody told me. My mother didn't tell me. My sister didn't tell me. My wife didn't tell me. Uh, and why did they do that? Well, if they did that to lie to me, if they did that to mislead me to think one thing versus another, if they did that to hurt me, it's one thing. They did that. Their perspective was there's nothing you can do about it. This is just going to weigh on you as you're doing your thing. Uh, and it's not that we care that you're not going to be successful because of us. We we care that you're not going to be successful because of you. If this thing weighs on you, this is why we omitted that, uh, that component. So intention plays a major role. But something else that we need to keep in mind, and that's, that again goes back into trust is relative, you have to consider how the other person takes it. And after that happened, I told them, this is my decision to make. If something like this happens, this is my decision to make. You know, in the same, you're talking about half-truths or, or lies of omission. Uh, there's white lies, you know. Uh, do I look good in these pants? <laughs> uh what do you do then? So again, it is, and it goes so deep into that thing that I look at so differently and uniquely compared to anybody else who talks about trust, and that is that trust is relative. And, and you can't judge your actions as being trustworthy or not trustworthy through your own life, uh, your own eyes. You have to judge them through the other person's eyes. So that's really interesting because obviously it worked out well for your father. But what if he had died? Well, actually, he had. Not that oh. time, though. Not oh, that time. Okay. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. That, uh, that, um, um, yeah, that that thing just escalated uh, to uh, you know. Now maybe I wouldn't. I wanted to know, so that was a decision that that, that they made for me. Right. That uh, and and if he would have passed. And if I would have known and would have decided to cut my trip short, come back to Israel and be there. Uh, by the way, I did miss when when he did pass. I was in military training uh, up in the Golan Heights. Uh, I served in the Israeli's 35th Airborne. Uh, we were doing training. It was just a training exercise. And my, my father passed away and they called me and they said, you need to come to the hospital. Uh, so he was hospitalized with a heart attack. They said... You need to come to the hospital. When they called me and told me they you need to come to the hospital, they said at that point they knew they need to let me know. And they right. said he's not in good shape. He was not in good shape. He was alive. By the time I got there, he passed. He passed 30 minutes before I arrived. It was, it's like a three-hour drive. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, you may start with good intentions, and we all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, so, but it comes back to one thing. At the same time, by the way, there are other people who would say, I am so glad you didn't tell me. 
because it would have screwed up my entire business trip and there was nothing that I could have done. And I'm so glad you didn't tell me. And and that's why you, and, and this one of, by the way, the two components of empathy, in my opinion, uh, in, in uh, positivity is empathy and empathy is not compassion. It's not pity. It's not uh, it, empathy is your ability to see things from the other person's perspective as if you were them, not you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, of course, the fraudish listeners know way too much about my life that, you know, they shouldn't. But I used to it started when um, my husband did sabbatical in Australia and we left for Australia. Two days later, my dad had a heart attack. Didn't tell me. And eventually when he was in the clear and his girlfriend didn't tell me either when he was in the clear, they told me. And then it became this cycle that every time I'm not kidding, I left town, my dad would get hospitalized. And like it was it was insane. But like I remember the last time we were coming back from a ski vacation and sure enough, and it was the most favorite place he ever loved to go. Sure enough, halfway through the ski vacation, he's in the hospital. And would he tell me? No, not until the drive home when he knew I was one hour away that I could come to the hospital. So it caused me to lose trust in him only about his health. Like, you know, but when you have those kind of repeated experiences, like I am not joking. He got to the point where he was like, well, you're going on a trip this week. I'm probably going to the hospital. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and check myself in. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. That's I'm like, oh my Nothing God. Yet. <laughs> but yeah, so we have these experiences and it's kind of, I mean, I do the whole T chart when, you know, can I trust this person? Can I not? Well, they did this, this, and this, but oh, they also did this and this. And so I'm like, mm. I, you guys, this is like therapy for me. I mean, truly, this is like therapy for me. <laughs> and you don't have to pay. I know. And and you're a lawyer, too. I mean, well, you're uh, I carry uh, a law degree among the others. It's uh, don't practice it. Haven't practiced. <laughs> never planned on practicing it, by the way. Um. So have you ever gone into a business? No. And, yes. <laughs> and said, these people are just sunk. I can't. There is nothing I can do to get them to trust each other. Uh, yes, let, let me let me give you a list of those businesses. Uh, you may know some of them. No, I'm not going to do that. Actually, the, the funny thing is that uh, when I told you the story of when I decided to go into trust, I actually skipped one step. Uh, when I give a keynote, I, I mentioned that step too, because uh, when right after I finished my dissertation, I was going to be a consultant, which I never want to do. Uh, I, I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to stay in. I, I want to stay out. I want to train your people on how to build trust and let you deal with it, uh, mainly because, uh, you know, you are an insider in the company. You typically, it's the HR department or a general manager or whoever. Uh, I would rather train you how to help others become more trusted than me coming in from completely the outside. But it was that company that I came in and I talked to them about my innovation culture, the components of the innovation culture. And one of the components is autonomy. Leaders must give autonomy to their employees. It's not the autonomy to choose which mountain to climb. It's you you choose the mountain, but they have to choose how to climb it and you don't micromanage them. Well, they, they don't do that. Why don't you do that? And we get down to, we really don't trust them that, that they will do the right thing or, or the right job that would do it well. So we micromanage them. Well, started talking about employees. Why don't you trust your boss? What, do, you, do you feel accountable? No, I don't. Why don't you feel accountable? Well, my boss micromanages me and so on. And it all comes down to, I don't trust them that if I'm going to try something outside of, if I'm going to draw outside the lines and fail, I don't trust that they're going to accept it. Uh, and, and then I started talking about having a constructive disagreement, which is people at the same level. Uh, are you able to have, to have a constructive disagreement where, you know, on flip side is the destructive disagreement where this is where everything becomes personal, emotional and irrational uh, and, and sometimes physical. And there's the flip side to it, which, by the way, is what I call the politically correct disagreement. This is where you you have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so um, 
so yeah, they can't have that. Why we we don't trust the other people who are in the meeting? And you know, I'm I keep hearing trust, 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 and I go, man, this this there's something below and 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 in a uh, culture of innovation. And that's when I um, uh, that's when I started uh, working on trust. This kind of helped uh, solidify to me that this is what I'm going to do. But yeah, I've been to organizations after starting to work on trust uh, to get to. Uh, you know, the level of trust is so low here that uh, it's it's going to take forever uh, to to climb out of it. Uh, by the way, when you have a team, th- there is a phenomenon that was researched uh, quite a bit uh, called the bad apple phenomenon. And that is when all, all you all it takes is one person in the team that, that you don't trust. The entire dynamic goes, you know, to, to nothing. Uh, and the reason is think about this. Kelly, uh, you and I, we trust each other. We're working within a team. Uh, can Do you feel that you can be vulnerable with me, share with me things, very private things, uh, ask stupid questions, suggest stupid ideas? Well, I already told you in one of my surveys, I found that you're 240% more likely to do that, more willing to do that. Well, all it takes is one person adding, we add one person to the team that neither one of us trust. And it can be simply because we don't know them yet. They didn't build that balance sheet yet. So we don't trust them yet. Uh, but neither one of us is willing to be vulnerable in that team anymore. Not until we trust this other person. So put you can sometimes put one person that's not trusted and you completely kill the dynamics within a company or a team. Yeah. And what happens when that's the CEO? <laughs> um, you know, we, we need to have this conversation. Uh, and if you don't want to have the conversation with me, you can have it with somebody else. And that's, by the way, uh, if uh, if I need to be the one finding out that it's the CEO or not somebody else, uh, that would be another reason why I would charge up front as opposed to after the deal is done. <laughs> Uh, actually, I, I, I typically always charge 50% upfront and the rest afterwards for a simple reason. And that is, I want you to see what I did for you in the keynote, in the workshop. I, I feel confident enough that after we're done, you're not going to start uh, negotiating, renegotiating with me. Uh, often it is the CEO. Often it is the general manager. And uh, then it's really up to the organization. I mean, I, I will go as far as uh, uh, pointing it out. And, uh, you know, we're going to do some surveys or interviews or things like that. And if it is the CEO, and again, I've, I've seen it to be the CEO. Uh, I've seen it several times. Oh, what, by the way, one of the things is that the first thing the CEO would say is people in the company trust me. Um, no, the board of directors trust me. Well, could could even not be them. But uh, yeah, the board of directors has a recourse. And uh, while the rest of the employees typically don't, other than uh, I'm going to leave. Um, but, um, you know, it's it, it comes down to uh, what do you want to do with it? Um, you can You can decide that you don't care. That's fine. You need to know one thing. You are making a compromise. You're saying, I'm going to continue and do things uh, versus um, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to make changes. By the way, and this is, you asked me about something that's unique about my work. And I told you that the way I look at trust is that trust is relative and not absolute, not universal. But there's another part. Uh, when I do a workshop, uh, you know, I, I typically start the workshop with the why. Why is trust important? Uh, you know, and, and statistics, research that was done by me, research that was done by others. Um, and, and after this powerful statement, I go to the second part. The second part is the what. This is the educational part. What is trust? The eight laws of trust. What makes a person trust you? The six components of my relative trust model. But if I left it there, it's not enough. So I spend half the time in the workshop with the how. And the how, I developed something that's called uh, the trust habits process. It's a seven-step process. It starts with, first of all, with recognizing that we need to find something bad that I'm doing that's holding me back from being more trusted. Remember how you said at the beginning, Kelly, that people did something and this is not, their, their trust balance dropped down to zero? Well, that's because bad things have much more impact 
on reducing trust than good things have on increasing trust. So let's find one thing that you're doing that's holding you back from being more trusted. And once we identify that one thing, why one? Because if you do 10, then you're not going to achieve any. So choose one. We're going to find out one. Then the whole process is about you forming a new habit. Because knowing what it is, it's like, I'm going to tell you a secret now. You know that I have the secret to losing weight? You want to know? <laughs> what is it, Ozempic? <laughs> no. Uh, you think the audience wants to know? I'm going to say it quietly so that the audience doesn't hear the okay. secret. You eat less and you work out more. <laughs> That's the secret. Well, you know, everybody knows that. Knowledge is not the issue. <laughs> The question is, how do you form new habits that would address this? And so my my whole trust habit uh, workshop or, or trust habit framework, it really exists in the intersection between the science of trust and the science of habit forming. And, and kind of my tagline to, to my workshops is form new habits that change old behaviors, build trust and transform the organization. Yeah. That is like, again, I'm later in my career. I can be picky, but if I went into an organization and I didn't feel that level of trust, I can just walk away. Whereas someone maybe younger or in more sort of, you know, just financially, whatever they need to do it, they might not look at trust as near as important. They're just there for the paycheck or something like that. Um, I I wrote down this. <laughs> what do you think about trust falls? I had a boss who literally said, if I ever have to do a trust fall, I'm quitting. <laughs> well, first of all, it obviously is a part of uh, the uh, trustfulness. Uh, do I really trust them? Uh, you know, I'll tell you something. We We never even talked about what trust really is. Uh, because I have a different definition for trust. You know, first of all, I look when I, I wanted to, you know, obviously I'm going to be a researcher of trust. I need to know what trust is. Let's go to dictionaries. Well, that was useless and useless exercise. Uh, let's go to Wikipedia. Well, that's another Euclid. Any other encyclopedia? No, those are all useless. So I started reading research going back to, I don't know how far back, I don't remember, but uh, I couldn't find anything. And here's what I found. Here's tr what trust is. We, why do we take risk? We take risk because there's no risk, no reward. So we want a reward, but obviously, most likely, it comes up with a risk. Now, as long as this is risk that's within our risk tolerance, there's no problem. We're going to take that risk. It's within our my risk to my personal risk tolerance, and we're going to get the reward. But what if the risk I need to take is below my risk tolerance bar? then I need to somehow bridge that gap. And the way I bridge that gap is by trusting somebody else. So that's what trust is. That somebody else would take it, take me from where the risk is to get this reward to above my, or, or to cross my risk tolerance to where I'm going to say, I feel comfortable enough. So, um, and it comes down to, what do you have to lose, right? What do you have to gain? So when you think about this trustful, so I'm going to be standing on this chair and I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to fall, right? By the way, I use a video. If you look at, uh, I don't know if you ever looked at uh, uh, YouTube uh, uh, trustful exercise. There's this video that I use, uh, which actually I think it's it's a real thing that really happened because you you can tell that not nobody there is a real actor and photography was not great. But they they do this exercise. So the facilitator asks him to the guy to step on the chair. So he's standing on the chair. He said, "I want you to close your eyes, and then I want you to fall." And you're going to have to trust them that they're going to catch you. So they're all standing behind him, you know, ready to catch. And he says, at the count of three, one, two, three, except that the guy, instead of falling back, he's falling forward where nobody, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's standing. You know what? 
Kelly, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't think that I'm going to quit the company, but I'm going to say, I'm not doing that. You want to fire me, fire me. I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm not getting on this chair. I have a fear of height. I'm also a pilot, but that, which is a different story, but yeah, that's uh trust falls is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not an exercise that I really use other than showing that funny video. Okay. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Oh my God. That's so funny. Um, so you're what's as we kind of like, finish up today. What is something I haven't asked you that you want the audience to really either learn or understand or like go forth and conquer? You know, I think it's, it's, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the line that I use when I close a workshop. Okay. I want you, the audience to know that the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your professional or personal success or failure. Can you be trusted? There's nothing more powerful than that, than being a person that can be trusted. You know, if we we did the workshop or even just a keynote, you would know the impact of being trusted, the, the impact of being trusted has on you. But that is the most important question. There are so many other questions uh, that, uh, you know, you can answer that would have an, an impact on your success or failure. Nothing comes to can you be trusted? Oh, my God, I love that. That this is like truly therapy. It's Therapy Friday. So um, I will charge you later. <laughs> you'll send me a bill in six minute increments, like all lawyers do. Um, <laughs> Dude, that part I never learned uh, when I took my law degree. The six minute increments. I no, think they it's didn't just get American. There. It's like an American thing, huh? Yoram, <laughs> um, this has been beyond delightful. And it's it's very, very close to my heart. Um, I didn't speak at my husband's memorial, but the one thing that I wish I would have said is that I had the utmost trust and respect for my husband and he had it with me. And I think it's the most important thing in a marriage is to have trust. So, yeah, oh, this is beyond delightful. And thank you. And we're going to have you back because Yoram's doing a new TED Talk that's going to drop very, very soon. So we're going to have you back for sure. Okay. Sounds good, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Wasn't that a fun episode? And thanks to LinkedIn for making this great connection. You guys know how important I know LinkedIn is. So reach out to Dr. Solomon or Yoram as we like to call him and be sure to follow him on all the socials. Have a great week.